Welcome back to the G Truth, the one and only good truth, with your host, myself, the one and only Giovanni Canales. Tonight, Monday, today's Monday. Tonight, we have the NBA Awards Show, hosted by the one and only Shaq Diesel, Shaquille O'Neal. And it'll be hilarious, it'll be fun, it'll be amazing. And we're going to find out all the results to, you know, the MVP, Sixth Man of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, Most Improved. Uh, I already did a video or a podcast episode on this um, during the midseason of who I think would win. And to be honest, I hold the same opinion for really all of them. MVP, Giannis, Defensive Player of the Year. I would still maybe contend Paul George, but it's looking like it's not going to be Paul George. It's probably going to be Giannis or Rudy Gobert. Sixth man of the year, I said Lou Williams in, at the midseason. Uh, I, would, I would really love to see Sabonis win it or even Montrez Harrell. They're both great, but if you're looking at the stats, it's got to be Lou Will. It's got to be Lou Will. Rookie of the year, I already said Luka. You, you can make an argument for Trey Young, but I think it's got to go to Luka. And then Coach of the Year, Mike Budenholzer. I would maybe give it to Nick Nurse if Nick Nurse was within the top three finalists. But I believe it was Mike Malone, Mike Budenholzer, and Doc Rivers. You, you can make an argument for each of them. They've all had great years, but I still keep my opinion of Mike Budenholzer winning the whole Thing. Most improved player, you, you can make the argument for D'Angelo Russell, De'Aaron Fox, Pascal Siakam, but really, let's gather all the evidence from the regular season, the postseason, all that stuff. De'Aaron Fox was great, but did that team and the Kings really get anywhere? They improved a bit, but they didn't get to that final area. Granted, the West is a lot tougher. The East, where the Nets and uh, the Raptors are, which have you know D'Angelo Russell and Pascal Siakam, like I mentioned before. D'Angelo Russell, similar to Darren Fox, pretty much the number one guy on 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 his team. And unlike Darren Fox, he led that team into the playoffs, and they actually did really really well against the loaded uh, 76ers squad. They did pretty well. And he's really, really young. He improved a whole lot. He's great, but not as great as who I'm going to mention next. Pascal Siakam. Now, he may be the second or third uh, wheel on that Toronto Raptors squad. But, le but let's get one thing straight. In the playoffs, he delivered. And he was on full display, especially in the finals. Game one, oh my goodness, he dropped like 34 points. What was it, 34 points, I think, I believe. Yeah, I, I, I don't see De'Aaron Fox or, you know, D'Angelo Russell doing that. And he did it efficiently, too. And, I mean, we, we, we can go throughout regular season games, postseason games, compare each of them. But all in all, you got to give it to pass off Siakam. Last year, you didn't know him at all. He was a nobody. This year, you know the name. You know the name. 
you know his number, 43. You know the name. You know the number. D'Angelo Russell, you, you knew him last year. Same with Aaron Fox. You knew him last year. This year they improved, but not as much as Pascal Siakam. All right. Last Thursday, there was two things that were pretty big in the NBA and the NFL. Both could be league-changing in the future for the NBA or right now for the NFL. And I'll get to that. I'm going to start with the NBA. Last Thursday, there was the NBA draft. We all knew who was going top three. Pelicans picked Zion. Memphis picked John Morant. And the New York Knicks picked R.J. Barrett. In that order right there. One, two, three. Pelicans, Memphis, Knicks. Two small market teams, one big market team. So now, it's very interesting. We, we all knew that this was going to happen going in. And then after that, we, we conceded that, I mean, it's a crapshoot. For fourth pick all the way down, all the way to the 60th pick, it's a crapshoot. But we, we don't know who there is, really. Who Who is that next person? We have an idea. If we have an idea, like uh, DeAndre Hunter, yeah, Cameron Reddish, Kobe White, uh, Jared Culver, yeah, Bull Bull all the way down. Yeah, players like that. Ruby Hachimura, I believe that's how you say his name. Yeah, players like that all the way across the board. But you don't really know or have a clear sense of who's going to change a franchise. But I'm going to start off with the Pelicans. Getting Zion. I mean, I'm, I'm going to divide this up between winners of the draft and losers of the draft. And really, there's one big loser that I have in mind. And maybe you guys have it in mind, too. But I'm going to start off the winners. Obviously, it's the first three. Pelicans, Grizzlies, and Knicks. Pelicans drafted Zion at one. It was a, it was a given. My only really concern with Zion Williamson is his weight. He's hovering really close to that 300-pound mark. And, you know, you can have all the muscle in the world on your legs, but if you're coming down each time after dunking it with nearly 300 pounds, I mean, it'll destroy your knees pretty early in your career. So I want to see him get it down maybe to, like, 230, 250, from 280 down to 230, 250. It's going to be tough, but even if, even if he can get it down just a bit to, like, 260, that would be great. And also, I'm not so sure about his ability to create. Um, a lot, of, a, a lot of the film that you see of him is in the fast break. A lot of it is um, away from the ball, which is great. I love seeing players that have that. Uh, what what I see now as like a Steph Curry ability, which is being a, being able to get their shot away from the ball, to be able to score and make an impact away from the ball. But I'm concerned when it really matters the most, will he be able to get into the lane? Because he's not a three-point shooter. He's not a shooter. Really. Will he be able to create his own shot if he needs to? I would love to see him develop some sort of post game. Maybe a little hook shot if he could, rather than just straight muscle up people. It could work, but 
I just don't see it working as effectively in the NBA as it did in the college basketball game. Now, the other first-round pick that I can remember pretty easily by the by the Pelicans was not that great. It was the center, Jackson Hayes, from, I believe, Texas. I am remembering correctly. Jackson Hayes. He's not really a shooter. I don't know how they would fit him along Zion Williamson. For me, they kind of messed up with, with that pick. I would have gone maybe for more, some, some, something along the lines of a shooter. You could have reached a bit more with Cam Reddish instead of letting him drop to the Atlanta Hawks. Now, there's a lot of concerns around Cameron Reddish and his motor, his will, his motivation, uh, his discipline, his perseverance, stuff like that. But I think that when you have a core around you now with Alonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Josh Hart, Drew Holiday, you can maybe go for a little reach. Maybe. And I believe that also, if I were the Pelicans, I personally would not have traded that fourth fourth pick in the draft to the Hawks, even, even though they got a whole lot more picks from that. I just personally believe that you don't do that because to me it seemed like they got all those picks but also at the same time they just dumped salary in Solomon Hill. I would have rather them try to trade for a proven all-star. And and I would really like them to have actually pushed for uh, Bradley Beal in this case. He, he was in some trade rumors for the Pelicans. I would have really liked them to push for that rather than trading that pick away. Next up, we have the Memphis Grizzlies with John Morant. Now, you look at him, he's a creator, he's a playmaker. He's a great start for a young core rebuild in Memphis. It's the end of the grit and grind era, but that's the way it is. At this point, that's the way it is. He spent two years at college. He went from really undervalued, unknown player to now the number two pick. He didn't shoot great from the three, but his playmaking ability and his creating ability really got him to where he is now. I don't think that he'll change the franchise of of Memphis, of the Grizzlies, but I think that him alongside any other player would be a great combo and from here, Memphis, since they're not going to get a whole lot of looks in free agency, I imagine, they're going to have to build from the draft. It's going to be a young core. So I believe that they're going to do fine, but they're not going to be an instant fix this year and next year. Maybe two or three years down from down the line from now. But I don't think that they'll be in the playoff or playoff discussion in, in relative time. Whereas the Pelicans, I believe, give them a year, they'll be there. Now, the New York Knicks. They drafted RJ Barrett. And in my head, I, I, I thought that they were going to screw this pick up really bad. They, they would get, like, I don't know, like some guy that no one's heard of at the third pick. And they'd swing really badly. But, you know, the, the, the Knicks actually, you know, were kind of competent right now. They got RJ Barrett, which you expected them to do, and which was the correct move. Didn't screw up the pick. 
So that's the greatest thing that the Knicks have done in quite some time. Now, here's the problem with that. And it's not so much that it's the problem with the New York Knicks. It's just the problem with the pick. R.J. Barrett. There's several problems associated with him. One is he doesn't shoot the ball well. He's a shooting guard. And he doesn't shoot the ball well. If you don't shoot the ball well in college, it's very hard to translate that to the NBA. I mean, you you have players like Lonzo Ball who shot really well in college and doesn't shoot well in the NBA. He he has moments. He has his moments. But then he he has this huge slump. And he has great on-fire moments. And he has a slump. And back and back and back and back. Granted, it's been only like a year or two. But if you don't come into the NBA shooting great, you're not going to shoot great later on. It's really hard for me to make that happen. And again, like he has that Kyrie Irving sort of Kobe Bryant uh, thought process almost. Where he just doesn't take good shots. You look at his film, he kind of just forces it up sometimes. And I hope that, especially in a New York Knicks team where they're probably not, probably not going to get a marquee uh, free agent, and even if they do, in Kevin Durant, he's not going to be playing. And so I just hope that they that he does not get spoiled by being quote unquote the star of a big market team and start jacking up shots every single time he gets a chance. So hopefully he pans out great, but they made the right pick, but I'm not sure if he's going to turn out all that great. Next up, we have the Atlanta Hawks. They did great with this draft. They got DeAndre Hunter. They they gave away Jackson Hayes to the Pelicans. They picked up Cam Reddish, who is a nice shooter. Um, now, like I said before, there's a lot of questions around his motor, his, his motivation, all that stuff. But I believe that in Atlanta, alongside Trey Young, he'll make a great fit along Trey Young where he can be more of a spot-up shooter. And he's shown that he's able to fit into a role alongside two other great players in Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett at Duke. And I was going through some film of DeAndre Hunter. He's great off the pick and roll. He can pass out of the pick and roll. He can score off the pick and roll. He's great with it. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's a big guy too, so he knows exactly what he's doing. He can shoot the ball as a catch and shoot. He's not really off the dribble uh, creating a shot almost, but he knows how to finish at the rim. He knows how to pull up uh, as a catch and shoot rather than creating his own three-point shot. That's what I meant to say. He's great in the fast break. And he will, just like Cam Reddish, I believe, will make a great fit with Trey Young. Another winner of this draft is the Chicago Bulls. They picked up Kobe White. And I believe that Kobe White is similar to uh, Jarrett Culver, who the Timberwolves ended up getting. He's a great finisher. He's a good shooter. He's not as crafty as you would think a point guard would be, like uh, Kyrie Irving or maybe even um, a Steph Curry. But but he takes it to the to the rim strong, and he finishes. He's a great shooter. He's great off the dribble. Unlike Jarrett Culver, I believe that he actually gets a lot more separation when he shoots, which is great. He's great at catching shooting. He has amazing vision he's a great passer and alongside Zach Levine and Larry Markkinen 
th- this offense will be one of the best in the league. Now, defensively, I don't know how they'll look. But I think that offensively, they'll be that offensively they'll be great. One of, one of the top in the league. Now, the other winner I have for this draft is one Bull Bull. Plays very similar to his father, Manute Bull. He can shoot the three, uh, taller than seven feet. He knows how to finish. Great playmaker. Knows what he's doing. But he fell all the way down to the 44th pick. And the only reason why he fell that far is because he was coming off an injury. Much like last year, drafted by the Denver Nuggets, coming back this year, Michael Porter Jr. He only fell that far in the draft because of injuries. And in this situation, it's great for both Bull Bull and the Denver Nuggets. He's the, For Bull Bull, he, he can look at it and say, the Nuggets know how to handle a situation just like me. They did a great job rehabbing Michael Porter Jr. And he's coming back this year. Will he be out of the gates dropping 20, 30 points? Probably not. But he'll be back. He'll be back. They did a great job rehabbing and keeping Isaiah Thomas after his... I don't even know. Fiasco with his whole hip surgery bouncing from uh, Boston to Cleveland to LA. There's probably another team in there. I don't know. But all the way back to the Denver Nuggets. And they did a great job retaining him and getting him back to health. And then for the Nuggets, you already have an established uh, first starting five. And a good bench. And you already have Michael Porter Jr. coming back. And so you can take the risk of having an injured player from the draft. You can take the risk. You can take the risk. And if he doesn't pan out, that's fine. Because you already got an established team. And I know those Lakers got stronger and the Rockets, are, uh, even though they have their own problems, so they, they will be there in playoff contention. And we got to see what the rest of the league does, especially in the West. But I just see that the Nuggets are going to be in the Western Conference Finals again and probably moving on to the NBA Finals. Will it happen? I don't know. But I think it has a good chance of happening. A very good chance at that. So with that, we're moving on to my sole loser of the draft. A team that has been in shambles for a long time now. They had the number one pick last year in DeAndre Ayton. They have Devin Booker with him as well. And they came out and said, we're going to be Shaq and Kobe 2.0. And they are one of the worst teams in the league. And I think that we all know, you look at that roster, what do they need? What do they need? They need a point guard. They have the number six pick. Who was drafted at number six? I believe it was Jarrett Culver. And who was drafted at number seven? Kobe White. Point guard and shooting guard. 
you needed either a point guard or a shooting guard. Because if you get a shooting guard, you can move point, uh, Devin Booker over to the point guard position. If you get a point guard, you can keep Devin, Devin Booker at the shooting guard position and have a player like Kobe White playing point. But as a dysfunctional organ organization that the Suns are, what do they do with that sixth pick? They trade it to the Minnesota Timberwolves for the 11th pick and Dario Saric. Yes! Yes, I can hear all of Phoenix Nation going, yes, we got Dario Saric, yay. Yay, and who do we got at number 11? Cameron Johnson. Whoa, yay, yay. Cameron Johnson was not even projected to be up there. They reached, and all of us know that they reached. Needs a small forward, too. Do they need a small forward? Test to the no. They do not need a small forward. They need a point guard. Or even a shooting guard to slide Devin Booker over to the point. This was clear cut as it gets. They planned to be top three, to have a chance at getting John Morant. It didn't work out. And so you fall into a plan B. And plan B was pretty obvious. You take Jarrett Culver or you take Kobe White. And they trade the pick to the Timberwolves to take Jarrett Culver. If you are a Suns fan, and one of my friends is a Suns fan, God bless him. He's going through a lot right now with, 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 with the Suns. The Suns are a mess. Should have kept the pick. But if you are a Suns fan, just like my friend, I do not blame you if you want to leave that organization and become a fan of any other team. You can become a fan of the Warriors. It's not wrong anymore. It's completely fine. You can become a fan of the Toronto Raptors if you want. No one blames you. No one blames you for becoming any other fan and jumping off the Titanic that is the Phoenix Suns. It's not even the Titanic. It's not even like built up with hype. It's just I don't even know what it is. It's a mess. That's what it is. Simply put, it's a mess. They needed a playmaker alongside Devin Booker. Someone who was a shooter, could handle the ball. And I really just laid it out for you. Kobe White and Jared Culver. What do they do also? They get Aaron Baines from the Boston Celtics. What do they also do? They trade away TJ Warren, a young player. And he's been growing. He actually had one of his best years this year. A young player. For, for wait for it, wait for it. Cash. They trade him for cash. You, you can argue all you want that they trade him for cash space. Making $35 million over three years. Roughly $12.5 million. Give or take. But you make all that up with Dario Saric and Aaron Baines, roughly. You make that all that cap space up. So if it's not about cap space, it's just dysfunction. They don't know what they're doing. I'm telling you, any one of you that's listening, you guys could probably run the Suns 
better than they are currently running themselves. They are a heaping pile of shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you thought I was gonna say something else, but no, I'm not gonna say that. Not on the podcast. That's right. They are a mess. Simply put, and they are the biggest loser of this draft, and they will once again be in the lottery. I don't know if they think that being the lottery is winning. It's not. Winning a championship is winning. Being being in the lottery, not so much. I was telling my friend, who's a, who's a Suns fan, that Cameron Johnson obviously was a mistake, and then they pick up Ty Jerome. And I was looking at some some of his highlights because, you know, you kind of gotta you know figure out what's going on. And he's a point guard from from Virginia. They won the championship, and I think uh, he he could be a role player, a good role player. His his floor, from 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 what I've seen, is like Mike James, who played for the Phoenix Suns for a bit. And then his ceiling is Steve Nash, but not when he was with Phoenix. Steve Nash when he was old and with the Lakers and very much out of his prime. That's Steve Nash. Floor Mike James, ceiling is out of his prime, really old Steve Nash. Do I, do I think that will make them title contenders? No. He's a good passer. He, he, he can shoot. But let's be honest. The Suns are going to be right back in the lottery next year. Nothing's going to change for them. At all. I did take a lot of time with covering the NBA draft, so I'm trying to shorten this up a little bit more. But it's about the same thing on Thursday, last Thursday. I'm going to transition to NFL. On June 20th, last Thursday, the NFL finalized their new pass interference review rule. And for the simple breakdown of it, it basically allows coaches to challenge pass interference calls and no calls up until the two-minute warnings of each half. In the last two minutes, so after the two-minute warning of each half and during overtime, the officials can stop the game to review the play that just happened and conclude based off their like what they saw live or the replays that play in the arena or, or, or the ones that they see in that moment that they're shown which, which are the same ones that we see on broadcast and from there they have to conclude through clear and obvious Clear and obvious visual evidence. Also, the rule states that there will be stricter criteria during the stoppages so that we do not extend games, all that stuff. So really making sure that it doesn't muck up the 
feeling and tempo of the game. And then also the, this rule can be imp implemented as well during Hail Marys in any game. It will be enforced for this season then at the end of the season in 2020. It will be up for review and vote uh, between all the owners and all the people involved in the NFL with making rules and they can vote to have it uh, implemented again, that's a word, ha have it implemented again into the season permanently or temporarily again and they can make small tweaks to it next season. But it will be there for this whole season as a little trial and error sort of thing. Similar to how this past season it was in the form of the roughing the pass rule. Let's take a little flashback to the roughing the pass rule. Once we got in order that we thought, okay, we 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 get what it is. We we understand what it is. Just protect the quarterback. It makes sense. And in our minds, we were like, it, it could go wrong, but in the end, we're gonna keep quarterbacks safer. And and we saw little adjustments in the preseason and the first few weeks to get accustomed to the rules where we saw teams that were very, very, very well coached, like the Patriots took their time and understanding it and then try to just rush after the QB and played it a lot safer. And then you had other teams that continued to make the same mistake, mistake over and over and over again and kept on getting these penalties called on them. However, at the same time, later on in the playoffs, we saw them rear their ugly head. This rule, the roughing the pass rule, not only in the regular season did it rear its ugly head, but in the playoffs. Check, if you check social media anytime during the playoffs, anytime the Patriots in particular played, you would see a lot of uh, comments that were very upset about this rule. Because you have these situations where whether it was Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Philip Rivers, Drew Brees, Patrick Mahomes, that would get that would get tapped on the shoulder, on the helmet, or anything, and a penalty would be called. Penalty flag would go flying across the field, and it would be called for a 15-yard penalty, or however much yardage it is. And in some cases, you can you can understand it. Someone got hit really late. And it should have been called. And then in other cases, they didn't get touched at all, or they got touched barely, like a hair, and <laughs> get called. And then what ended up happening is that in the playoffs, you had these quarterbacks taking devastating hits, late hits, man, I add, and these referees were scared to throw the flag because they got so much backlash for poor calls that, that ended up affecting some of the game. Now, I believe that this penalty implementation with the pass interference is going to do something similar to that where we will have the preseason and the first few weeks of the season of teams adjusting to it, trying to maybe abuse it, uh, and then adjusting to that abuse of it bringing out little loopholes around it, all that stuff. Because that's just what teams do. 
So there will be results like we saw with the rough in the past where it will rear its ugly head in the regular season and the playoffs. But I think but I think that the NFL did do a better job writing down the letter of the law for this rule. Mainly because they added the clear and obvious visual evidence as well as they implemented the extra part saying there will be stricter criteria during stoppage. Now I believe that, you know, coaches are going to continue throwing challenges and all that stuff, telling people to review it. There will be reviews, there will be stoppages, and it will kind of get annoying at times. But I, but I think that the NFL tried tried to do their best to um, appease fans, especially Saints fans, in the Saints organization after that hit by Robley Coleman, I believe that's his name, uh, in the NFC Championship that, that really sparked this whole rule coming to fruition but I think the NFL did do a better job now it's still subjective what's clear and obvious visual evidence and and, and uh, I highly advise reading uh, an article on on Deadspin by Dom Cosentino because he does a great job of describing not a team built loophole around it but more of a an accidental loophole of it dealing with broadcasting and how certain uh, let's say perspectives on the cameras from the broadcasting which referees do see they, they don't get some secret sort of footage 360 footage no they, they, they get what you see on TV and how certain clips like that can change and alter perspective and the call ultimately. I do believe that it will have a similar impact as the roughing the passer call, the rule, the penalty. I don't think it will have that much of an impact and a lot of people will be that upset at it. But I do believe that there will be plays where we now expect it to happen where we'll see something we'll be screaming at the TV to challenge the play and call a penalty just because we're going to take that as the letter of the law and I hope that it doesn't become that case I believe I believe that that NFC championship game the ending of it that I already covered and my thoughts on it on my podcast uh, previously when it happened, will that one play, correcting that one play that already happened and cannot be corrected, where it's just the mistake of the referees, an overcorrection of it, which I don't think this is an overcorrection, but I think it has the potential to have drastic consequences. And that one play, and this correction of it, will have incredible ripple effects. Just that one play going uncalled. Just the one play going uncalled. We will see teams try to manipulate this rule. We will see teams that cannot adapt to this rule and will fail and crash and burn. But there's always one team that you can count on to adapt to any rule change. And that is the New, Eng- the New England 
Patriots. They will do just fine. I don't know about any other team. They will be struggles. But I'm telling you right now, the Patriots are probably in camp already. Going through drills right now. I'm telling you, they, they are. They probably are. Because that's just how good they are. And that's how good Bill Belichick is. Anyways, that will be it for the G-Truth. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow me on Twitter so that you can see my feed on my thoughts of what's going on in the NFL and the NBA. Be sure to like and subscribe this uh, video that you see on YouTube. And be sure to uh, subscribe and follow the podcast. And if you can, also share with your friends and family so that I can make the channel grow. And I'll do a lot better on my part of shortening down these little uh, snippets and clips of topics that I want to talk about instead of having them go on for maybe like 15, 20 minutes. Anyways, thank you for listening. G-Truth, I've been your host, Giovanni Canales. Thanks for listening. Peace out.